here in 2023. I know we had a Sunday last Sunday, but it just feels like ready to celebrate now. Um, good to see everybody. We, I just wanted to give you a quick update. I had a few folks ask me about. We had taken up an offering for a family in Hull at our Christmas Eve service, and some folks were just asking kind of how that went and uh, how the family's doing. Um, I had an opportunity to go and visit with this family uh, right back before Christmas, um, along with one of our church members. And one of our church families, actually, that's what initiated this, was they were providing Christmas for the kids uh, in this family. So grandmother had two children living in the home with her, and uh, they're a church-going family. And that was part of what gave us, uh, really wanted to, to try and help them out. Um, and then just some situations going on there uh, financially and, and uh, other things happening in their life that uh, just wanted to be able to help them out. So we did. Um, and so they got a Christmas, but then the Christmas Eve gift, um, they had uh, several bills that totaled around right at about $3,000. Would you believe how much money y'all gave? <laughs> Isn't that unreal? I mean, <clears throat> when, when Chris Warren shared with me um, after the Christmas Eve service what the total was, it was given, maybe it was teen, I can't remember which one of y'all told me, but uh, I was just like, wow, I mean, God thing, right? So it's great to see him work like that. It's great to be the hands of the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for your generosity and giving. Um, we are starting a new sermon series today. Um, somebody told it's it book Job. Somebody told me last Sunday on the way out of church and said, "You know what? Typically in January we need some sunshine from you." <laughs> Job doesn't seem like it's gonna uh, you know a book that makes us want to smile, but uh, I think what we'll find is that Job will um, Job speaks to the motivation of the heart. And we'll see that today as we uh, meet Job uh, here in the beginning um, lines of the letter. Um, and it will uh, cause us to think deeply, reflect deeply on ourselves and on some mega issues of life, the bigger issues of life. And so I look forward to some contemplation. But I do think that also the Lord Jesus is going to smile in on us and it's going to fill us with his joy and fill us with encouragement um, as we navigate through all this material. So sunshine is on the way is what I'm trying to say. Um, again, our text comes from uh, the book of Job. We're going to be reading today just the first three verses. Uh, Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're introduced to the character Job here. I'm going to ask if you would to stand to your feet for the reading of God's word. Job chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. Here we go. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, let's kind of go into these verses and learn what these verses tell us about our main character here in the story, Job. Verse 1 begins, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Let's stop right there. You wonder, why is it that his name is not pronounced Job, right? It's because in the Hebrew, it's actually uh, spelled I-Y-Y-O-B. It's pronounced Eob, but when they translate that into English, for whatever reason, it comes out not Job, but Job. Um, the text says that this man lived in the land of Uz, all right? That is, I did go out and, and uh, did some Hebrew hunting to make sure I was pronouncing that right. It is Uz, not Uz. Um, let's take a look at our map. You can see where the land of Uz is here. This is a, this is a picture of um, ancient Israel in Bible times. And you can see their land of Israel. You see the um, Jordan River uh, coming down out of the Sea of Galilee, feeding into the northern tip of the Dead Sea. Well, below the Dead Sea is this big yellow blob there called the Kingdom of Edom. 
Um, Edom goes back to Ishmael, the son of Isaac, or, or the brother of Isaac back in Bible times. Um, but Edom, um, it was a nation where most scholars believe the land of Uz is located. So this is basically, uh, Job is in and around the land of Israel. Um, that's where the story uh, takes place in that region. Um, now let me share with you one more insight, and that concerns the dating of the life of Job. Not the dating of when this was written, because there's a lot of different opinions about who wrote this and when it was written. But let me share with you more about the dating of when Job lived on the earth. I've got a, a slide here for you. And you can see there the approximate date for the Tower of Babel account at the beginning of that. Um, that's Genesis chapter 11, around 2200 B.C. So Tower of Babel event, Genesis chapter 11, 2200 B.C. That's kind of what we're looking at here. If you move forward on the timeline, you see Abraham pops into the picture around 2000 B.C. So just 200 years later, after the, after the Tower of Babel incident, Abraham is on the scene. Job falls somewhere in between those two events, somewhere between the Tower of Babel event and Abraham, most scholars think, and I'll give you a couple reasons here, some evidence as to why, most scholars think that Job actually would have been perhaps even a contemporary of Abraham or placed sometime just before the life of Abraham. Um, it says, here's some of the evidence. It says at the end of the book of Job, Job chapter 42 and verse 16, is the second to last verse in the whole book, says that after this incident, after what's recorded here in the, in the book of Job, this incident's in his life, Job lived another 140 years. Scholars think that he lived about 200 years of age. Now, if you compare that to Abraham, Father Abraham, in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 7, which says that Abraham lived 175 years, and then you go to verse 8, and it describes that 175 years as a good old age. Well, if Abraham at 175 years was by the reckoning of the writing of scripture a good old age, then if Job lived 200 years, then we would have thought, well, that's about, you know, comparable to what the patriarchs were living at that point in human history. Because if you go back to uh, Noah, back to our slide, I don't know if we can go back to that slide again, but you can see, I think I have it on there, um, on that slide, anyhow, you've got the, the flood incident that takes place around 2350 B.C. So the report of the flood in the scriptures around 2350 B.C. And you've got Noah who lives 700 years. So he's like 500 years old or something like that at the time that the flood takes place. He lives 700 years. And then there's this precipitous drop-off that takes place in how old people live after the flood. And so Noah being, uh, sorry, not Noah. Which one are we talking about? Job. Job being 200 years old. Um, that follows in line with what the other, how long the other patriarchs lived. So that's part of the reason why uh, scholars date uh, Job to the, the uh, era of the patriarchs. Also, another evidence that they point to to help scholars date the life of Job, they would point to the fact that Job's wealth is measured not in talents of gold and silver, but rather in the amount of his livestock. And that would have been very common, a very common wealth indicator during the patriarchal age is that people's wealth was measured in livestock. One other factor that scholars point to for dating the life of Job are that the tragedies that befall Job and his family come at the hands of these two people groups called the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans. This is first mentioned in Job chapter 1 and verse 15, where it says that a servant reports, comes in with this terrible report to Job that the Sabaeans have fell upon them and taken them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And then Job chapter 1 and verse 17, while he was yet speaking, there came another servant who said the Chaldeans formed three people groups and made a raid on the camels and took the camels and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. So you have these two people groups mentioned in the book of Job uh, that were also operative and active in that part of the world during the patriarchal age, during Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So for all these reasons, and there's other reasons that get a lot more technical, but those are the main reasons why we place the life of Job in 
uh, around, in and around 2000 BC. All right, back to our text, Job chapter 1 and verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. Now, the word blameless is not an indicator. It's not saying here that Job was perfect. Um, the Lord Jesus was perfect. He's the only perfection that's ever been here on the earth. But it was just, it's pointing to the fact that Job was a man of great honor, a man of great honesty. It's talking about his character here. Um, he was known to be honest in his business dealings. An upstanding reputation is not something that you build overnight. Rather, it's built through consistency over time. That's the kind of man that we're dealing with here in Job. It says there still in verse 1 that Job was one who feared God and turned away from evil. So Job wasn't just a moral man. He wasn't just a guy who, who did the right thing because he thought that was the right thing to do. He, his morality actually spilled out of a relationship with the God of the Bible. And that's what verse 1 is pointing to here. Now, if you flip over in your Bible to Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 14, Job gets a mention. Uh, Job's name is mentioned amongst two other great men of the faith. Um, and it says there in, in Ezekiel chapter 14, in verse 14, God's having a conversation with the prophet Ezekiel. This is, you know, a, a lot of years later. God says, verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were inside of Jerusalem, he says, they would deliver but their own lives. By their own righteousness, declares the Lord God. In other words, God's saying he has intent. He's telling Ezekiel, I have an intent to go in and destroy Jerusalem. That's what I'm intending to do here. Um, and so God is just making that point to, uh, to Ezekiel. But he's saying that even if, so even though, in other words, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were inside of the city, I would still go in and take out the city. I would spare those guys. I'd get them out. But I wouldn't spare the city itself just because they were there. Here in this verse, Job's righteousness is compared by God. Notice, this is God talking to Ezekiel. Job's righteousness compare, is compared to Daniel and Noah. God is putting Job on the same level as these other two great men of the faith. Therefore, back to Job chapter 1 and verse 1. When Job declares, I'm sorry, when the Bible declares that Job is blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, let us not understate the level of devotion of this man to the Lord. I mean, he's right up there with Noah and with Daniel. All right, verse 2. They were born to Job, there were born to Job, seven sons and three daughters. Now, some commentators want to make, want to spiritualize these numbers, and perhaps they're right to do so. Um, I don't take this verse that way. I just think that the Bible's reporting that Job had a lot of children, that God blessed him with a lot of children. And uh, there happens to be, uh, he had a lot of sons and a lot of daughters, seven and three, respectively. Verse uh, 3, concerning his wealth, verse 3, Job possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Uh, a yoke of oxen means two, so it's a pair. So we're dealing with 1,000 oxen. I thank you. I want to give credit to our men's Thursday morning Bible study group for pointing that out to me. Thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all doing that. Um, uh, as I stated earlier during the patriarchal, and he says he had 500 female donkeys. As I stated earlier during the patriarchal period, uh, when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were around, a person's wealth was not measured in talents of gold and silver, but rather in livestock. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. Camels were very expensive animals uh, at this point in human history. Imagine, I mean, the trade that Job must have been involved in. If he had 3,000 camels, wouldn't he just like watch them as pets or something like that? No, I mean, that's a commodity, right? He's trading those things. He was probably likely the chief camel supplier for the entire region with 3,000 camels um, under his uh, uh, supervision. 
Just the same, 1,000 oxen can plow an awful lot of ground. I mean, the average family, average farm family might have had a pair of oxen or maybe two pair of oxen. Um, Job had 1,000 oxen. This says an awful lot about the of, amount of grazing land that this man must have possessed. Also, the amount of land that he would have um, been able to, to cultivate and produce uh, quite a bit of, of agricultural uh, product. Not to mention the number of servants. I mean, he had seven sons. I don't think they were handling all of these livestock, right? He had tons of servants. In fact, he points this out at the end of verse 3. He says that he had very many servants. You bet he did. Uh, the conclusion of the matter, end of verse 3, is that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. The east referring to anyone, any people groups east of the Jordan River. So anywhere from Jordan River out toward the east. Job is the head of a major agricultural empire. He was the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffett, the Elon Musk of his day. This is what the text is reporting in verse 3. Now, the verses that follow are going to talk about the good family relations that Job's children had with one another. It says in verse 4 that Job's sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, probably likely referring to their birthday, so the family would get together when it was, it was somebody's birthday, they would cut cake, that sort of thing. What a nice thing to do, right? Uh, middle of verse 4, it says, and they would send and they would invite their three sisters. So their sisters were invited to come out for the birthday parties as well. So the whole family would get together. Anytime somebody had a birthday, that's a lot of cake to eat. Ten, ten different children plus family and all that sort of stuff. Um, in other words, this family got along great together. Verse 5. Verse 5 tells something about the faith of this man, Job. It says there, middle of verse 5, that Job would rise early in the morning. He would offer burnt offerings unto the Lord on behalf of his children. So here the text is pointing to the faith and the devotion of this man, Job. Skip down to verse 6. When we arrive at verse 6, we're introduced to the main premise of the book. So we get into verse 6, we get into these, these opening lines of the book, and it's telling us, hey, look, this is the point of the book. And some philosophers miss the point of the book. Uh, in this occasion, uh, I'm hoping I give you the... I hope I, I hope I tell you right. We'll see. Um, it transitions, but in the main premise, it basically transitions away from these introductory remarks about Job and now to a scene that's taking place in heaven. There's a conversation that's about to unfold between Almighty God and the adversary, Satan. Let's take a look. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, when angels came to present themselves before the Lord. So there's some sort of a council of angels that's taking place now, starting in verse 6, up in heaven. So the scene goes up to heaven, goes up to the heavenly throne room, and uh, there's some sort of a council of angels. We see similar accounts of these councils of angels taking place. One of them takes place in the book of Daniel. Another one takes place over in the book of Revelation. Also in the book of Isaiah, we see similar gatherings of angels for purposes of council together. And so it was in the days of Job that there was one such gathering. It says at the end of verse 6 that Satan also came among them, the word Satan in Hebrew literally is translated adversary or accuser. This is one of those words that's transliterated. Transliterated means that we take the word in Hebrew and how it sounds, and then we just use uh, English phonics to spell that out and to make it sound in English the way it actually sounds in Hebrew. So when you say the word Satan, you're actually speaking in Hebrew. Didn't know if you knew that or not. But anyway, that's, that's how that works. Tabernacle is kind of the same thing. Uh, but the word, when translated into English, what it actually means Satan actually means it means the accuser. It means the adversary. And it's interesting here that in the, in the uh, Hebrew text here, in, and I don't do Hebrew, by the way, so I'm, just, I'm working off my other people's um, knowledge. Um, but the, the Hebrew, there's an article here, the word the, that appears in here. And so it's, 
it's really not giving Satan a proper name. It's just it's pointing out that it is the, the accuser or the adversary that is coming before God on this occasion. Um, now, we discover from the dialogue that follows that Satan is not just popping in on God. Satan, rather, has been summoned by God to this council of angels. God has a specific purpose in mind for why the accuser has shown up. Um, verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? So there is God baiting, I hope you see this now, baiting Satan into what happens next. Satan didn't show up with Job on his mind. Satan didn't show up and ask God the question, facilitate the question about Job. Instead, it is God who asks the question. It's God who begins this conversation with Satan about Job specifically. He says, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Um, have you thought about my servant Job? Satan takes the bait, verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Because when you think about it, God, verse 10, have you not put a hedge around this man? Are you not protecting him and all that he has and all of his 3,000 camels and his 7,000 sheep? I mean, not one of them ever seems to pass away. Nothing ever bad seems to happen in his life. Everything just seems growing and going good. Have you blessed the work of his hands? His possessions have increased in the land, verse 11. But if you were to stretch out your hand, God, and you were to touch all that he has, in other words, if you were to take it back from him, if you were to take that stuff back, God, I'll tell you what will happen. Job will curse you to your face. Essentially, the accuser is saying that the only reason that Job worships you, the only reason that Job obeys you, is because Job has seen the results of what obedience produces for himself. In other words, his relationship with God is merely transactional. He doesn't worship you because he loves you. He doesn't worship you because you're worthy. He doesn't worship you because you're holy. He worships you because of his 3,000 camels. That's why he's worshiping you. And so this is, this, is, this, is, this is the beginning of this conversation that Satan's having here with God, um, testing this situation. Um, that's just uh, Job acting basically in his own self-interest. It's kind of like a child saying that they're willing to obey if I can get a piece of candy. Right? I'm willing to obey if... I can stay up later. I'm willing to obey if I can get that favorite toy I've been asking for for a while now. And so if, you'll, if, if I'll get that, then yeah, you'll get good behavior out of me. And so that's basically what Satan's saying here. Job's, Job's worship of you, Job's love of you, Job's, Job's devotion to you, Job's getting up early in the morning making these sacrifices. It's all so that things will just keep going well in his life. So basically Satan posits that the person of Job that what we have in Job is a very disingenuous individual, self-motivated. All right, well, that's our text for today. That's our introduction to this guy uh, named Job. And so I want to now stop and ask the question that we ask every week around here. What difference does all this make to your life and to mine? Great question. I'll see if I can answer that. I'm not sure if when uh, Satan asked the question in heaven, uh, this is just me thinking, if the angels who were standing around went, Maybe Job is just, you know, 
worshiping you, God, because of, he doesn't really know about your holiness, maybe to quite the extent that we do. Maybe he doesn't know about your love quite the way we do. Maybe his understanding of you is this transactional relationship. Maybe he only worships you, God, because of, maybe Satan's got a point here. I don't, I don't know if that happened, probably didn't. But anyhow, uh, for our benefit, maybe I'm like, I'm putting it out there. Um, you know, we all have human relationships that act this way. And so I got a slide for you here, and this shows so, uh, something I've shared with y'all uh, on other occasions. Uh, this is the model of maturity. It comes from a lady by the name of Janet Hagberg. Ran to it back in my seminary days, and I've used it in some of my classes and that sort of thing. Um, this is um, basically six different stages of maturity. Let me just explain it really quickly. She starts out with this maturity model, and she says the beginning where we all come in into life, we come into in this stage one. She calls this powerless state. These are people who um, later on in life, uh, children perhaps, but then people who are later on in life who maybe have addiction problems or maybe have uh, life-controlling issues or maybe just feel stuck in life and they don't know how to take the next step. So we can all, have, we can all feel powerless. But she, had that, she says, you know, some people are just rooted in this stage. They don't know how to take the next step in order to motivate people in order to change their situation. I feel powerless. Second stage she calls um, power by association. I'll explain that one after I explain the next one. So this third stage she calls power by symbols. Um, I like to call it, um, I think that's what she calls it. I didn't even look at this beforehand. I just told Brian to pull it up. Power, oh, power by achievement. Okay, I like to call it power by symbols. Um, so power by achievement is this idea that, you know, you, you get the right kind of car that you're driving around in. You got the right size house. You got the right size bank account. You got the position in politics. You got the position in the county, whatever it might be to where you've kind of arrived. I, I might think of this as, as an arrived state. Like I've achieved the heights of success by uh, our materialistic world's perspective. And so that's kind of the stage three person. Now the association person, a lot of how they feel them, find themselves significant is they talk about the powerful people that they're around, right? They'll name drop, they'll talk about being out at the Georgia ball game in LA this weekend or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying those folks are, are stage two. But I'm just saying, you know, when that's all you hear, right, and that's their Facebook feed, you kind of like, well, okay, that's maybe what we're dealing with. I hope I didn't out anybody that you know that you love. But <laughs> in any case, you can just see where um, the association person is saying, I'm powerful, I'm somebody of consequence because of who I'm associated with. I associate myself with powerful people and powerful locations and that sort of thing. Um, when you move beyond that, though, and, and you begin to surrender your life to something greater than just yourself and building an empire to yourself and your self-aggrandizement, then you begin to enter into this, state, uh, this, this power of the stage three of reflection. So we begin to ask the ultimate questions of life. What, am I, what, what is life supposed to be about? What am I been put on this earth for? And then as you begin to answer those questions, you move into the stage three. And, you know, the local church is wonderful at facilitating those kinds of questions. This is a place where those kinds of questions are asked week in and week out, where we're constantly being presented with um, a, a concept of life that says life's bigger than just you and me. I mean, just like the gifts that were given at, at Christmas Eve. I mean, the local church helps facilitate us toward maturity. Um, the stage five is this power by purpose. This person has answered those questions and now begins to live in response to those. It begins to uh, um, turn their energies, turn their resources, turn their focus, turn their heart toward uh, something greater than themselves. So the stage five. Stage six is basically the person uh, like your aged grandmother, perhaps maybe a coach that you remember from your um, high school days, that when you think of that person, they just call you to the other side of this equation. They call you away from all the shallow stuff, and to a life of depth and a life of real purpose and meaning. Um, 
Folks, and let me go back to show how this connects up with Job. Folks who are at this first level, the powerless stage, are there. Uh, the way that they get things done is through manipulation. Through manipulation. I mean, perhaps a boyfriend or girlfriend uh, might want to try and manipulate a certain situation or move things in a certain direction, um, and they can use different tools to do that. An employer who is at stage one might manipulate their employees by threatening to fire someone. Or just the opposite of stage one, stage two even, boss. Because um, really manipulation runs through all these first three stages. Um, is somebody who's holding out rewards. Rewards like, uh, hey, look, I've, I'll give you extra days off. Uh, you'll get a raise uh, coming up here soon. And if you'll do the things that I need for you to do and you'll produce in a certain way, then you'll get those rewards. Again, that's just a form of manipulation. In friendships, this can look like someone who is constantly leveraging emotion. They're in and out of the friendship, trying to pull the strings constantly, trying to keep you off of balance so that they can be the one who's in control. You know, the church down through the ages has been guilty of manipulating people as well. For example, during the medieval period, the church began selling what it called, what it called indulgences. This was a system where you could come to the church, give money to the church, and then by giving money, you were basically buying your way out of purgatory. You were shortening your sentence there. That was manipulation to the shame of the church. And that went on for hundreds of years. During the years of the Puritans, legalism dominated the church to the extent that people were publicly humiliated if they ever sinned. I mean, there is a place for confession and restoring individuals, but the church used public humiliation as a way of controlling people, as a way of keeping the masses in line, again, to the shame of the church. Friends, manipulation is a devious and diabolical tool. At its heart, it does not consider the needs of other persons. At its heart, it is self-interest oriented. Parenting can easily devolve into manipulation. Moms and dads, be careful that you are not raising your children by manipulation. It will not produce the ends that you long for in your child. Now, I'm surprised to learn in this story that Satan thought Job to be the best candidate for this kind of test. I mean, really, Job? The man who was upright and blameless in all that he did, and he followed after the Lord, and he didn't follow the ways of evil, but he followed after the ways of the Lord. I thought it was strange that, that Satan would, uh, would take that bait. Um, Jane, Job, a stage one manipulator? Really? I mean, that's how, how, how Satan saw him. Friends, it goes to show that sat how Satan sees, it goes to show how Satan sees the world. Manipulators interpret the world through that lens. Manipulators just assume that because they're motivated that way, that everyone else in the world is motivated that way. And Satan tempts us with titles. He tempts us with pleasure. He tempts us with, with, with wealth. He tempts us with success because he thinks that everyone in the world operates out of the same bucket of shallowness and self-aggrandizement and self-preservation just like he does. But again, notice in the story that it was God who initiates this test of Job. It was God who picks Job, not Satan. God asked Job chapter 1 and verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? Now, God did this not because God needed to prove something to Satan, nor did God do this because he needed to prove something to the council of angels. The supreme example, no, God picked Job rather, the supreme example of righteousness because God wanted to prove something to you and to me 
through his word. God wants for us to see the proper basis for our relationship with him. Let me say that again. God wants for us here in the book of Job, and we'll see this carried out all the way through to the end, to see the proper basis of a relationship with him. It is not transactional. Um, a give and get, that is not the basis of an authentic relationship with God. Satan wants to say, he wants to say about us, all these followers of yours, God, they're just bringing their tithes because they think that their tithes will result in something good for them. It's not actually worship. And all these so-called devoted Christians, they only say their prayers because, God, they just want you to give them stuff. That's all that they pray for. That's why they pray. God, you are so naive. Your followers, they attend church just because they're afraid that if they miss, God, your hand might, you might give them a terrible week coming up. And so we see how quickly a relationship with the Lord that began out of love for him and out of a desire to serve him, how quickly that can devolve into a hot mess. Again, the book of Job was not written to prove something to Satan. And it was not written to prove something to the hosts of heaven and the council of angels. No, the book of Job, the story of Job and his suffering were written for our benefit. It is God hitting pause and asking us to self-reflect, why do you worship me? Why are you in this relationship? Are you in this relationship for what you can get from it? God does tell us he's going to give us great things. God makes promises. Let's not uh, act like that doesn't exist. But God's saying, what's the primary motivation of your heart? Is your, gen is your love genuine? Is your loyalty genuine to your king? Um, over Christmas break, I uh, watched, rewatched. Um, the, the movie series, The Lord of the Rings. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Actually, I hadn't finished it quite yet. I was taking it in like 20 or 30 minute snippets. That's about all I could, I couldn't do the four hours, 12 hours, whatever it was. That's a long bunch of movies. Um, but anyhow, uh, in The Lord of the Rings, I was struck by, as I was watching through that movie, and I know it's a fictional story, but I was just struck by all these soldiers that kept marching out under the orders of their king, knowing that their bodies were going to be marred. Knowing that they were likely forfeiting their futures. Um, why did they do that? Because their devotion to their king was genuine and real. Because their belief in his reign and rulership was rock solid. Friends, I hope in the weeks to come that God's word will peel back the layers of our heart and mind through the book of Job. And it will expose us raw to the bone. And it will show us, it will be that moment of self-reflection for us to say, you know what, God, I'm coming into this relationship because I sincerely love you. And I sincerely want for you to have all of me. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for uh, just the opportunity to open your word today, to hear from your truth. And for our lives to be brought back to center. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that even now, in these moments of communion, continues to stir in our hearts. Help us, Lord, in the weeks that follow to open ourselves to be evaluated by you. May your Holy Spirit 
shine its light in the deep recesses of our heart. Expose anything, Lord, that is not from you, so that we may worship you authentically, Lord, so that we may love you with reckless abandon. Not for what we might get, but Lord, because you are worthy. We give you these quiet moments. We pray all these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.